daughter, the eldest one, uh, was there probably like 12 or so. Uh, so, so in a way, I guess uh, we shocked a bit. No, not even. Uh, yeah, probably more like 10-ish. Uh, but she <laughs> was into Linkin Park because uh, I was blasting Linkin Park every time we were driving, uh, right? Uh, because I had all the CDs and all of that. So when they came to Hong Kong, she was like, oh, Dad, I want to come with you. And my wife, she's not really a hard rock uh, fan, but nevertheless, uh, she <laughs> tagged along and joined, I guess, more for lack of confidence in my ability of uh, controlling my daughter. during <laughs> 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 the Episode number seven. Today we have Luca Derlin with us. He works at Deutsche Bank and is the head of private banking in Luxembourg. Welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. You guessed it right. Yeah, nice um, job. Yeah, I tried many times in my head and works well. <laughs> so we start off usually with a simple question. Who are you today? How would you define Luca? How would you define Luca? Uh, is uh, a guy who loves his uh, job who loves his family, who's really passionate about most of the things that he's engaged into. Life is short, we need to live it to the max. Leave nothing to chance, take ownership of this, and make the best of it. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, I didn't expect that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's shorter and easier, but I like that. Uh, so maybe let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? And um, tell us more about you. Okay. So I was born in Genova. I spent there uh, my childhood and all the way up until I finished university. Uh, after university, I started my professional career in McKinsey. So I moved to Milan, uh, where I spent the first uh, five years of my professional life with uh, a short break of one year to go to INSEAD for my MBA in uh, 2001. Where? INSEAD, okay. Fontainebleau. Okay. I don't know. It. Don't? No. Oh. I'm ignorant, sorry. No. <laughs> INSEAD. So it's a Master of Business Administration. Okay. Based in Fontainebleau out of Paris. Ah, okay. I it's missed the French. It's pretty good. Ah, okay, okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I would say so. No, it's been a great experience. It was uh, one year, very intense. It's one of the most international uh, MBAs uh, because there's uh, plenty of nationalities uh, and the attendance is uh, very diverse in that respect. It's also pretty intense because it's uh, one of the few uh, MBAs which is only one year instead of being two. Uh, so it tends to be very intense with 27 plus exam that you need to give in the course of 10 months. And uh, you need to juggle that with, I would say, a pretty in intense social life. Uh, instead, it's <coughs> very renowned uh, for the diversity of activities on an extracurricular basis. And so, no, definitely it was uh, a memorable year uh, which left a lot of friends, a lot of network, and every time you go afterwards uh, in your life, there will always be somebody who used to be in a course or in your uh, graduation, and uh, it's good to reconnect and have somebody to tap into uh, throughout the course of your life. So one year, one stint, uh, going back to McKinsey for a couple of additional years after my, my MBA. Until then, in uh, 2004, uh, I was uh, tapped by Deutsche Bank uh, to take a role in London. And so I uh, started my professional career outside of uh, consulting 
and into the real world, as I call it, in the financial services industries. And uh, so the past 17 plus years, I've been uh, with Deutsche Bank uh, in a number of different locations and capacities uh, across, uh, across divisions. A loyal man, I would say, right? 17 years, it's... Uh Yes, at times I surprised myself about how long I uh, managed to stay, but I have to say, in the end, uh, with all the difficulties and complexities that an organization like that tend to have, nevertheless, uh, I always find Deutsche Bank a great place to work. It has a very entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, it always catered well for me, uh, being a very impatient personality, uh, and I was given the ability to move from job to job, jurisdiction to jurisdictions, for the past several years, so it was great in that respect. And let's get back a bit let's when rewind. you were uh, when you were at McKinsey. Yeah, how come you decide to pursue an MBA during your career? Don't you think it was like a bit too early, or you just wanted to have this experience abroad? Well, ironically enough, one of the key decisions for me to choose McKinsey as let's say uh, preferred. So this job was exactly the fact that as part of your uh, development program, you're expected to have an MBA very early in your life. Okay. So uh, when I did my, let's say, due diligence back then and say, okay, my ambition is at some point to go to a nice MBA. What is the best way to get there? If you go through, a, uh, let's say, a normal course of action, uh, you would probably have to spend five to 10 years in any regular industry and develop your experience there. Differently, if you go to a consulting company uh, like McKinsey, for example, uh, after the first two years of an analyst, if you're not fired, of course, uh, you will be expected to go to an MBA and then come back in, as an associate uh, okay. on the back of it. What was your role back then at McKinsey? Back then, I was an analyst. Uh, so it's the entry level after your, uh, you graduate from any university. Okay. Uh, so you work as part of a larger team with a long hierarchy of uh, people who are senior to you in the form of associate, engagement manager, associate principal, partner, director, who will uh, give you, uh, let's say, uh, direction and demands uh, on uh, deliverables that you need to uh, take care of. And it is a pretty intense, uh, but also very rewarding experience because since early on in your life, you're exposed to a very complex type of situations. You're exposed to senior manager of senior management of high-profile companies, and therefore it's a really uh, strong uh, start in terms of uh, being able to learn, to develop, and to grow in uh, in your career. Okay, so you think that after you moved to Milan, then you went in France. Do you think that was the um, let's say the step that you needed then? to go again abroad in London? So going abroad, it happened more by chance than by design. For me, the key point at that moment was, you know, you're happy with where you are, McKinsey, at the point, but at the same time, uh, you need to grow into something else. I felt that for me, consulting wasn't something which uh, I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Uh, I like more to own my own things on my own team to have a more long-term oriented, uh, let's say, objective uh, and deliverables rather than jumping from client to client, project to project, uh, location to location. Uh, plus, by that time, I had a young daughter uh, who was two years old. Working hours at McKinsey are not exactly soft. I was kind of working 100, 110 hours a week. 
so time for the family and for my little one uh, was uh, pretty scarce. And uh, um, so it happens that, and by then, my last project, I was working in Turkey. Uh, because the more you get senior in McKinsey, the more you're expected to develop an international profile, to manage a team. And so in that particular project, I was the only Italian abroad working uh, based in Istanbul on uh, a client that one of our clients had acquired in the Turkish territory. Uh, so life was pretty brutal. Uh, so it happened that by chance, uh, I received uh, calls from a couple of editors, one in uh, the US and one in the UK. And so uh, I took a week off to go and take interviews. Uh, and uh, as part of the interviews that uh, I undertook in London, uh, I called a friend of mine, former colleague McKinsey as well, who had moved to London, uh, who had started working in Deutsche Bank. And I told him, Fabrizio, I'm coming over for interviews with another company. Uh, why don't we meet up for lunch and, uh, and uh, we have a chat? And uh, so when he learned that I was actually considering leaving McKinsey, he said, well, if you're leaving McKinsey, you should come to Deutsche because it's actually a great place and uh, I think you should really consider What year was that? That year was 2004. Okay. Mm. So it was, yeah, really good years for the banks and everything. It I was good years. And we're uh, making a lot of money. Banks, yes and no. In fact, uh, when I joined Deutsche Bank in 2004, that is the year in which the bank undertook a large restructuring program. Mm. And in fact, uh, it was public information, so nothing that I'm, uh, let's say, putting out there uh, that could compromise us. But it was when Joe Ackerman came uh, to power, right, and he was the CEO of the bank. And in for 2005, he promised a, a return on equity of 20% to right. the investor community. So behind the scene was that in order to achieve those targets, there were uh, quite a number of uh, very demanding initiatives. Uh, part of which there was quite a large downsizing program uh, to the tone of 10% or so of the population in those days. Uh, and therefore, in one side, you may say that was on the ramp up after the uh, dot-com bubble had burst and all the way up to 2008 global financial crisis. So just before the midpoint, let's say, of that trajectory. But nevertheless, profitability was not necessarily at the level where uh, senior management or the financial community may have expected. So life uh, was not that simple either, uh, despite you may think otherwise. You, you were in London during the 2008 financial crisis? I was uh, uh, in London for a part of it, uh, because that was also the year in which uh, my uh, global head at the time, who was based in New York, and back then I was head of strategy for capital markets business, he uh, asked me, look, I think uh, I need your help uh, to develop and build up our Asia franchise. And I need somebody to bring over the way we do things in, let's say, mature economies and uh, headquarters uh, into Asia. Yeah. And so I moved from London to Hong Kong to take the role of chief operating officer for our Asia capital markets business. So in August, I moved from uh, one location to another. And so uh, it wasn't again necessarily particularly easy uh, time uh, because, again, on the back of the financial crisis, uh, uh, the whole world came down. Guess what? We had, in that case, to restructure a third of the uh, team uh, that we had currently uh, over there. The good news is that that crisis proved to be, in a way, reasonably uh, short-lived uh, because we then were able to rebuild the team and in a matter of two years, right, uh, we went back to uh, making uh, as much revenue as had never been the case before. 
and the team became even grower, uh, grew even larger than it was before at my time of arrival. So I guess that as it often happens, uh, maybe the bank reacted uh, in a bit of a forceful manner. And uh, in light of the financial crisis and without certainty on how fast things will come back, right, it was decided to make uh, sacrifices in terms of job reductions that then, given that the war came back in force immediately afterwards, right, uh, we had to rehire and rebuild. But at the same time, I think the financial crisis, the change of location, you had also family. That you, I think that you had to um, pay attention to. No, indeed. I have to say the family is always a key, uh, let's say, element uh, for me. And back to your question before, when you say, why do you move from McKinsey to, to, to banking? Uh, people often smile when they ask me and uh, generally tend to say, i decided to go into investment banking because I wanted to improve my standard of living, my quality of life, right? And for the, uh, let's say, uh, people who are not familiar with the environment or only hear the stories about investment banking, they will say, you're crazy, right? Because you're going to investment banking. But for somebody who moves from 100 plus hours a week to something like 60, 70 hours a week, that's already It's a walking apart, yeah. right? And, and so even when you discuss with your friends or uh, you have family gatherings and stuff, say, oh, look, you're crazy working that hard, uh, but in relative terms, it was a major win. Uh, I managed to regain my weekends, uh, round the clock nights uh, were no longer an option, right? So uh, again, it was, uh, it was uh, comparatively speaking, uh, very easy sailing uh, in terms okay. of uh, uh, work-life balance. So you're just um, almost at half your working hours when you moved to London and yeah. then Hong Kong. Yeah. In Hong Kong you was similar to London in terms of working hours or the, what was like the mentality on the work front, the environment? So, so in terms of uh, working hours, I have to say, I pretty much tend to work those hours uh, no matter what irrespective of the job, uh, which is also probably a function of the fact that uh, you need to stop yourself at some point uh, because otherwise uh, you can always keep working and working and working. Uh, at the same time, going below a certain amount will never allow you uh, to cover all the things that you want to take care of. And uh, if you are in a certain type of position, there will always be uh, quite a demand on your side and, uh, and a large audience of people that you need to work with and take care of and a large number of deliverables that you want to uh, be able to do something about. So uh, that's more of a, uh, let's say, personal uh, Probably there are people who are clever, smarter, and better than I am, and they managed to achieve what I do in 60 hours in 45. Chapeau to them. Uh, clearly, I've not been able to crack that uh, yet. Uh, maybe uh, growing senior and uh, getting smarter, I will also get faster at some point. But uh, for the time being, I need to admit defeat on, uh, on that front. <laughs> Uh, back to Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong, it's been a great experience. Uh, I loved it. It was uh, five years of uh, paradise. Uh, yes, working hours uh, and, uh, were tough, uh, but the environment was simply phenomenal. Uh, we had a blooming business, uh, apart from the very early start uh, in which we suffered the situation which uh, I just described before. But after the, uh, let's say, initial phase, it was a really, really successful story. Uh, so uh, we managed to create a team uh, with, uh, with great spirit and uh, with great outcome. Hong Kong is a super international city. Uh, with a vibrant ESPA community. Mm. Uh, so it's really work hard, play hard type of environment. Uh, you live in these uh, big uh, buildings uh, which are 30, 40, 50 stories high, uh, three, four towers, 
So in a way, you live uh, uh, in a community uh, which can be easily 500, 1,000 people uh, as part of the same complex, which tend to revolve around uh, all of the activities which are part of that complex per se. You have your swimming pool, you have your gym, you have your tennis court, your squash court, the uh, playing area for the kids. So it tends to become, in a way, a, a micro-universe yeah. uh, where people really uh, bond together. And it's very easy to connect. The other thing, all the expats have many things in common, right? You're not local, uh, you don't belong there, in a way, in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, you have kids who go all to the same schools, all to the same uh, rugby team, football team, uh, club, you name it. And so the ability to network, get close together and, and live together, uh, it's really easy. And, uh, and it gives you a phenomenal uh, life experience. Well, this is, we feel like your description of Hong Kong is really similar for our view of Luxembourg. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's like and everyone. The, you mean the fifty-story buildings, or <laughs> well, I, li I live on, on ground floor, but uh, I'm looking for what <laughs> for an upgrade. No, but uh, yeah, for for me, uh, your description is what I think about Luxembourg. Never been to Hong Kong, but uh, I believe you because I had a friend that he was an English teacher there, and he said, "Bro, the life there is crazy. Everyone is expats, and they just go out and want to meet new people." In fact, I think he left because it was too crazy for him. <laughs> but um, I believe it. And so when you moved to, to Hong Kong, you actually got promoted. Uh, I was promoted before. Ah, you were, you were promoted I just changed before. the job. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you were like obliged to or you, was your choice? No. Uh, well, the good news is that uh, obliged is a big word. And uh, even it was my choice uh, okay. in any way. Uh, I've always been very open-minded. I always wanted new challenges. I always wanted new life experiences. Uh, so when my boss offered me the opportunity, uh, we jumped on a plane with my wife. Uh, we went, we visited Hong Kong for a week. We did our, let's say, on the ground uh, due diligence. And I have to say, uh, it was early June week uh, with one of those not very favorable weeks uh, in terms of uh, um, storm season. Uh, and so it was raining most of the time. It wasn't a particularly pleasant experience uh, during those five days. But nevertheless, uh, we said, listen, let's give it a go. Let's try, right? We never lived uh, outside of Europe. Uh, it's going to be an enriching experience for us. It's going to be an enriching experience for our kids, right? Um, we have a return ticket in the sense that if we don't like it, we can always come back to London after two years or so. Mm -hmm. so, so let's go. And then uh, the story turns that you don't want to come back. <laughs> and uh, it becomes such a, a great place, right? And, and uh, I was asked at least three times uh, to come back to Europe uh, to take some other jobs, which uh, were not exactly uh, my dream job, let's say. Uh, so uh, I politely uh, declined in a way that uh, fortunately allowed me not to get fired in the process. Uh, but then uh, when there was a fourth opportunity uh, that I was put in play to come back to London, and at that point the job also made sense, at that point we said, okay, uh, let's go back and let's go back to what uh, I used to define to my wife, the real world, right? Okay. Because I always told her, let's enjoy what we have here, right? Because this is not the real world, and at some point we'll have to come back. And uh, okay. so that parenthesis, in a way, closed. But in the back of my mind, maybe, why not? Uh, if uh, there will be the opportunity to retire there, uh, uh, assuming that there's enough of a, uh, let's say, 
pension pot uh, to be able to uh, tap into the real estate market uh, in Hong Kong, which is pretty crazy. Uh, and that will be uh, a dream come true. Yeah. And uh, actually, how um, the discussion with your, I mean, not discussion, but yeah, let's call it discussion with your wife to to move to Hong Kong. How did it go? Like you discussed before you decided together or you said... My dear, we're moving to Hong Kong. No, I, w- I have to say, uh, I'm lucky enough uh, to have uh, to have uh, a wife uh, and a woman that I'm spending my life with, uh, with whom there is a very transparent, candid, and, and clear dialogue. Uh, luckily, we have uh, many, uh, let's say, things in common uh, when it comes to way of life, uh, interests, passions, and, and desire to explore and do new things. Uh, and as long as the, let's say, dialogue is managed in a uh, considerate manner, right, uh, it's unusual uh, that uh, no will come as an answer. I've had my fair share of those, uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, in fact, when I came back from Hong Kong to London in 2013, and that was in uh, August, uh, then my boss at the time, uh, literally, January comes, uh, four months later, he tells me, oh, Luca, by the way, I think... It would be great because I really need somebody to take care of something. And I would really like if you could please move to New York. Uh, at which point, uh, of course, I went back home. Uh, I had a conversation uh, with my wife on the topic. But uh, again, the reaction was not as positive because rightly so. And in fairness to her, she said, we just moved four or five months ago. We put the kids into new school. We you had two kids at the time. No, at the time I had three kids. Three kids. I already had the free So kids. between London Hong Kong, London, you had two kids. So now, uh, before going to London, I remember the first I had, one the that first you one had was at in McKinsey. Milan. The first one yeah. I had before, exactly, while I was in Milan and McKinsey, I had my uh, second uh, child, son, uh, who's now 16, uh, in London. Okay. And then we had the little one, our third one, who's now 12, uh, in, in Hong Kong. Oh, whoa. So you had three different kids born in three different countries. Indeed. So that's why when in February, my current boss asked me, look, I think your next uh, career step should be to go to Luxembourg because that's a platform where we really have big plans and uh, we need your help and we would like uh, you to take care of that. Right? Uh, I came back home. We had a nice conversation with my wife. But again, luckily enough, we both were in violent agreement that there would not be a Lux baby, uh, which again... <laughs> uh, he made the decision pretty easy, given that uh, we already have a handful uh, with the three that we have, and we're not exactly in our prime age anymore. But again, it was a relief on both sides, I think, that none of us uh, decided to put a flag on the ground uh, with a baby in, uh, in Lux uh, territories. And uh, we're happy enough with uh, the three that we have, and, uh, and uh, it is good as it is. But since when you're here? Uh... So I moved physically with the family in August 21. Okay. Uh, so it's just over uh, five months. Yes, exactly. I'm a, I'm a newbie. Uh, <laughs> I'm a newbie to, uh, to Luxembourg. Uh, there's still clearly a lot to explore and to learn. Unfortunately, the first few months uh, probably have not been the most conducive right, to, to exploring, given that yeah. uh, due to all of the current restrictions, there's been a combination of uh, uh, lockdowns, uh, inability to go out and, and really connect as much as you would like. Uh, but uh, we're very keen, uh, let's say, uh, to go into the uh, local reality and, and uh, be able to connect as we've done in any other place that uh, we've been. Also, the good news, I guess, is 
uh, the first few months have been pretty intense in terms of uh, uh, finding your place uh, and uh, moving in, uh, unpacking, building your wardrobes, uh, setting up all the right things. So the good news is, again, we've done all of that. By now we're cleared. Uh, my wife also has been pretty busy because she was working uh, most of the weekends uh, in order to uh, gain her certificate as a yoga teacher. Okay. And she is currently in London uh, for the final graduation okay. of that particular uh, degree. Uh, so we put behind our backs, I will say, uh, most of the to-dos things uh, that we needed to clear uh, in order to say, hey, we're settled, we're good to go. And so uh, we're looking forward for more of the, let's say, spring season uh, to come. Uh, hopefully, less restrictions in terms yeah, of ability to move around, connect and meet people, and uh, finally get into the flow of the city and uh, getting to learn uh, to learn the uh, reality of, uh, of the life. As far as you're here, you're happy with the country. You like here. We are happy. I mean, it's okay. a it's a it's a place uh, which uh, seems to be relatively easy to live. Everything is very convenient, right? Yeah. Uh, having the luxury of uh, door-to-door, jump on a car and go to work in less than 15 minutes, I think it's uh, something that uh, only few locations uh, can offer. Yeah. You live in Luxembourg City or you... I live in Luxembourg City, okay. in uh, Mel. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. You work in Kierberg, so yeah, 15 minutes here or there. Exactly. Especially the time of the day in which I jump on a car and there's literally no traffic. Uh, so it's a it's a What time fast. you go to work? <laughs> Well, what time I go to work is probably around 8.30. But before going to work, I go to the gym every morning. Okay. Uh, so I leave home, I don't know, 6.15, 20. So uh, at the time, uh, <laughs> there's hardly any traffic. Uh, yeah. so, so Just to the German. We're getting... Okay. Um, <clears throat> hey, we were talking about Luxembourg. We moved to Luxembourg. When we left, the, uh, when you left, we were in London. Now we went in Hong Kong. We had yeah, a child. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit more. Come it, back. It's a bit more foggy right now. That's why we moved back to ah, Luxembourg. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, no, one thing that I was wondering is like um, while moving with kids from one city to another. Mm, I don't know what was in your mind that it's better to stay in me, uh, especially, I guess, moving from London to, to Hong Kong to stay in Europe because you're closer to your parents and their grandparents or because at the end, I mean, Hong Kong, you spent uh, quite a lot of years. So Yeah, why? Uh, ultimately, job is what drives uh, decisions and priorities. Uh, and as long as the job is in a place which is fine uh, for a family, right, uh, then we're very open and... and Uh, keen, uh, let's say. Uh, for us, the primary point is always new experience, right? New challenges. Uh, how many uh, kids uh, in their life had the opportunity to experience different cities? I've always been fascinated. For example, in London, we have a very dear friend of ours. Uh, she's Venezuelan. She married to an Italian. She's Venezuelan, but then uh, of a Swiss father. So she ended up uh, going good time in uh, Switzerland, but also traveling in different locations around the world because he was in a senior management position for a multinational firm. Long story short, she speaks something like five languages. She's lived in the States. She's lived in uh, Europe. She's lived in Asia. And uh, the level of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, culture, the level of uh, uh, intellectual uh, flexibility, uh, the level of... Uh, exposure that people like that have had to uh, from the world, right? It's, uh, in my view, incomparable. There are some people who are very static. They value uh, being born and raised and living all of their life in one place. 
uh, that doesn't necessarily marries up well with uh, the values that my wife and myself have. So luckily enough, we've been given opportunities, and so it would be a shame to to uh, pass on uh, on anything on that. Yeah, and um, actually something else I was really curious about is like um, uh, more um, work related stuff, but. I mean, sometimes, you know, we work uh, in audit, so we work quite a lot of hours, but like hearing, I mean, listening to your story and hearing that you work like 100 hours per, per week and even more, uh, how were you coping with it? Like, um, what, what was driving you? What was uh, your daily life to say, okay, I have to keep going on and... Well, there are different life, uh, different stages of your life, right? Uh, back then, it served me right at the point in my life. I was in my late 20s, right? Uh, I had the clear objective of starting to work for what I consider to be a primary consulting company because I thought, uh, and then it proved to be right, that that would open for me many doors uh, in my in my future professional, uh, professional career. So you're young, you're motivated, uh, you feel like a hero uh, because you're doing things that... Uh, Nobody in your peer group uh, has actually had the chance or the, uh, or the luck of being exposed to. Uh, when you compare yourself and you speak with your friends, right, uh, there's a clear element of, wow, you're doing something that I would like to be able to do it. I don't know how you do it. So in a way, there's an element of uh, exclusivity and, and also of, uh, uh, let's say, ability to do something that uh, not everybody seems to be prepared for. That comes with cost. It comes with sacrifice. Uh, it's not for everybody, and it's not forever. In fact, I could not contemplate uh, having that kind of uh, living standard uh, at the point of my life where I'm now, right? Uh, so I think there is a season uh, for every part of your, uh, of your life. How you cope with things, somebody may say, listen, again, uh, you're not that young anymore and still uh, you're working a good, I don't know, 10, 12 hours uh, per day. Uh, how do you do it? Uh, I think it's, again, part of your motivation, right? Uh, i love my job. Uh, I cannot think of doing a job where I would wake up in the morning and would say, oh, gee, I need to go to the office again, right? Uh, I hate it. Uh, I'm backward counting for the time I will be back home to have dinner tonight. No, that's not the case. If and when I will ever find myself in that position, I will do everything I can to change job. I found myself in that position in the reasonably recent past, few years ago. And that's why I actively uh, try to move things around in order to move out of the position which I was at the time stuck into and be able to go and do something which I had a, I had a passion for. So life is too short, as I was saying before, so it's a waste to uh, waste it on something that you don't have an interest in and, or, or a passion for. Uh, so I'm lucky enough that I have something that I'm excited and happy about and uh, I don't look at the hours. So it just happens that If somebody in my team, if somebody, uh, a client, uh, someone on the pro side, my boss or whatever, there's something to be done, I don't say, oh, it's late, I'm tired, etc. You just do it, you feel good about it, and you have the adrenaline pushing you through. Uh, and until you haven't done it, you just cannot go to sleep. At least that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but in McKinsey, um, where you're doing uh, uh, what is it called? Strategic management consulting. Management yeah. consulting. Yeah. Was it related to banking or uh, something? Yeah, different? I've always done pretty much uh, FIG, uh, which is financial services okay. uh, practice. Uh, there was only one exception uh, just before the dot com bubble burst in 2001, which, of course, telecom was the big thing and internet was the next big thing. So I had my uh, stint uh, for three months in a telecom project. 
uh, but it really wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, so I, in a way, forced myself into try and do a project which was outside of the financial services space, and just not to, uh, let's say, potentially look backward later in the years and say, oh, you didn't give yourself a chance to see if you liked anything different from financial services. But that's a space which I was always very passionate about since when I was a very young kid uh, doing my own investment and stuff. And so uh, that particular project was the further com uh, confirmation uh, that there was no other place than financial services that I wanted to be into. And so, uh, yes, I've always been in the banking space. Okay. And why growing up? I mean, a young Luca in Genova, uh, what was uh, driving you at the time? Like, uh, do you have passion for quantitative subjects or was more other stuff? What, uh, no, uh, probably more other stuff, I guess. I was uh, I was a young kid, right? Back then there was no internet. Back then there was more TV, there were papers. Uh, and uh, uh, you've developed this fascination for uh, things uh, in a uh, less structured way. You're less bombarded by social media as it happens today. But there were uh, probably certain elements which uh, played a certain type of influence for me, right? So uh, my mom tells me that when I was a kid, uh, right, six years, seven years, and a school, the teacher asked, okay, what do you want to be uh, when you grow up? My answer was, I want to be a milliardario, which back <laughs> in the days is, I want to be a millionaire, uh, but uh, uh, in the old Italian lira. Uh, oh, yeah. and, and the point yeah. is, yeah, how, how, how do you get there, right? Uh, uh, so then you need to uh, try and see what is the way to... Uh, ideally grow up the ranks and do something good, right? And back then, uh, there were obviously very charismatic figures in the Italian uh, economic landscape, right? Uh, people like Avvocato Agnelli, uh, who was four years uh, at the helm of uh, uh, the Fiat group, uh, and a few others. So uh, the, the, the ambition was, I didn't really know what it was, because I said, there was an internet, uh, the ability of uh, learning something uh, depending on you having access to somebody who knew that thing and you could go and ask, right? So, bluntly put, I started the McKinsey without really knowing, right, what McKinsey was about, but I knew that it was a gateway uh, to, to uh, a professional career. And uh, I was lucky enough uh, to, to uh, get to meet somebody who was already in the firm, explain me how it worked, Right, uh, and and uh, I was lucky enough to be able to go through the very demanding recruiting process that they have and successfully pass it, and then uh, learn more and appreciate uh, about what uh, consulting was uh, was all about, which I said was great, but with some limitation uh, compared to uh, let's say my ambitions and my personality uh, trait in uh, in that respect. Uh, so yes, that's what uh, motivated the young look as you call it before. I see. I see. And uh, so, how do you reflect this? So, from your from your experience with your kids, how do you how do you try to to inspire them? And I don't know, because I, I I bet you you hope for them to have more or less the same path that you had, no, to be tried or at least just to no. be successful. If I, if I, yes, that, that's the last bit, which is the one that matters, in the sense that. I'm not necessarily keen for my kids to follow my, my, my path. What I'm keen about is that they do something that they're passionate about and they do it to excel and succeed. Uh, and whatever that is, I will respect. Of course, I will try not to guide them or to drive them, but at least to have them think hard about the choices that they're making. 
because clearly some choices have also implications in terms of what your reasonably uh, reasonable uh, expectation of life standard will be right and there are many jobs right which are very 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 honorable uh, and unfortunately do not necessarily compensate the people uh, that they do those jobs right mm-hmm. in a level which will allow them uh, to have certain type of standard of living And since I have to say my kids have been blessed enough uh, to be exposed to a family who allowed them to, uh, let's say, tr- live in different locations, travel around the world because both my wife and I are passionate travelers and every saving that we have, that's where it goes. And so uh, if they say, I would like to do this, uh, but that particular venue, uh, right, is not one which realistically will allow them to, to have a certain standard of living, I say, yes, that's great do it, have you thought about this? How can you balance the two things? You need to jump into your own decisions with open eyes and knowing what the implications about those that, uh, that are. So as long as you do that in the way and you don't expect mom and dad to keep being your funding party right, for the rest <laughs> of your life, then it's really fine. Right? Uh, so, so it's more about uh, them choosing their own uh, way uh, in a way that they're committed to and, and uh, not because it's something that we've chosen for them. I've seen way too many people who are miserable, uh, millionaires, but they're miserable mm-hmm. because potentially they've been, uh, let's say, taking a road uh, which was uh, uh, paved for them by their parents, but it's not something that they're passionate about inside. And I think you can be very sad even if you're very rich uh, just because that's not something for you. I see, I see. And uh, how do you see, um, let's say, uh, the, the, the power of uh, social media into this? Because as you mentioned, for you, you, during your childhood, I mean, you didn't have this, right? I guess um, uh, what could have been like um, a difficult situation for you, right? Um, at the end, you had your parents, your, your environment around you. Nowadays, I feel like the environment is way more threatening because of social media itself. Or what, what do you say? Or for you, it's not a big deal? Or no, I think so, social media are very uh, interesting, fascinating, and delicate topic at the same time, right? Because on one side, uh, they give you the degree of access uh, to information, right? Which is very easy and accessible. Uh, everybody today can become, uh, let's say, a speaker to the world. Uh, which is something that in the past, forget it, right? Uh, that would, uh, was a privilege uh, limited to few who really had a powerful, uh, let's say, role or position like, within like society. Like me and Flavio right now. Right? Yes. No one exactly. would listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> today, today you have the ability of shaping the world, right, with uh, your podcast or other, uh, let's say, media, social media related activities, right, uh, which you may uh, come up with. Um, at the same time, right, uh, social media... Um, Make it so that uh, the world can see you, right? And, uh, and therefore, if you're successful, if you're good, and if you get millions of likes, it's great. But if you don't, right, uh, somebody who yesterday may not fa- uh, feel like I'm a failure, today they may feel like, hey, I'm failed. You know what? Mm-hmm. I have less than one million uh, likes. I have less than X million followers. And that, if you're not, let's say, mentally prepared or solid enough in your, uh, let's say, personality, in your thinking process, etc., right, uh, can 
give life to uh, a lot of uh, downside and a lot of uh, a lot of negative effect right so so it's uh, it's important to to uh, be able to handle right uh, know it use it uh, but uh, with uh, with maturity and uh, with a smart attitude I think it's pretty I don't know if dangerous or not for young kids because when you go on Instagram you see all these people that they live like a happy life they have like perfect body perfect life you know and they want that because they think it's the standard like when you go on the news feed, uh, feed in, on Instagram you're you're watching just i think the 0.1% of all the people that are on Instagram and they they make those videos like it's reality mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. at least it's not yeah that's why so i think many young kids uh, young kids uh, young girls are are like scared or not being like them yeah. how do you manage the relation of your kids with social media in this case i think it's important as a parent to be present yeah. right to be there as a sounding board to be there also uh, in a way as a as a referee or as a limiting factor in some instances right yeah. uh, my 12 years old daughter uh, right uh, she has access to social media but in a certain way at times maybe she has more than she should have uh tiktok is uh, one that we still struggle with uh right uh you should put the parental control uh i think we, we try to rather than enforce to coach right uh, i'm not necessarily in favor of uh let's say hardcore restriction in that respect okay we have to resort uh well at times we resort to even more drastic measures which is okay just give me the phone yeah uh, and go to bed and and <laughs> and end of the story for a day right but no that's where uh, again uh, it goes back to the role that as a parent uh, you play as an educator right and it applies to social media it applies to relationship between uh, peers at school uh, in your everyday life uh, and all of these kind of things but uh again that's where uh many uh people uh suffer right uh because again uh, they may not have the care and the support uh, from the parents or from somebody more mature on them right to give them the right perspective on things and that's a good example because I have a good friend of mine he's an advisor to uh, a large number of uh, uh billionaire families uh in in Europe and what he tells me is look you will be amazed right uh, many of the kids of these families right uh, they're pretty much left to their own devices uh, just because their parents are so rich they don't have time and or interest for them right and these kids are so fragile because they are in their late uh, teens early 20s but being disliked or not recognized on social media can be a reason of uh, a crisis right uh, a, a lack of identity a failure of a life right so that's where unfortunately uh, if there's not the right kind of support uh, in that respect uh, and there's not the right level of maturity uh, at the level of the individual uh, it can be uh, pretty nasty yes yeah uh, you want to ask a question because i still want to talk about social media you want to go on with social media no, no actually no, no, i wanted to uh, switch topic but no go okay, on okay you're the boss No, come on, then you're going to tell no, me no, no, I no, couldn't no, ask no. this question. No, no, okay. Ask your last question. Come on, Last on. one, last one. I'll give it to you. Last one. I'm joking. You can ma- ask as many as you want. No, no, okay. No, I'm, I'm really interested about this social yeah, media, really especially with, uh, with teens also, because our last um, guest, mm-hmm. 
uh, he's like really busy with the uh, bullism uh, yeah cyber cyber bullism mm-hmm. because uh, he said that it's uh, i think one uh, over three or something like that i remember the the ratio right now um they suffer and they're like uh, <laughs> and it's like it's like you said if they don't reach a number of likes on instagram they feel sad and everything or there is a Sometimes he also, we were also talking, he said sometimes it happened that uh, there are like revenge porn on the internet and when of girls or boys, they're like 15, 16. And how can you manage it in, inside of head of, uh, just, uh, of a teen? So that's why I've asked you also about the, um, the relationship that you have with social media because I think it's really important nowadays to have controls on the social media of the of the kids because you never know what they can see because you have access to a number of information that are above your age. Like I'm 15, but if I go on Google, I can see yep. wherever you want. Before it was not like this. That's true. You're like 12, 13, you play with the toy, your toys and everything. You go out with people of your age. That's it. You had your life step by step. Right now I see like girls on internet. They're like girls, like, <laughs> no, like uh, small women. Yeah, no. <laughs> like people of um, 12, 13, they look like women. Women, like uh, it's Adults. crazy. Yeah, mm, I don't know. I'm a bit concerned about this topic because, no, as you said, it's it's not an easy topic. It's yeah. one that uh, does and should keep, uh, let's say, wake uh, up at night a uh, few parents, probably more than. Uh, it is currently the case, but as I was saying before, uh, I think the cure to that is uh, uh, to establish a very open and regular dialogue with your kids, right? Uh, I'm no expert, yes. but now, I think now, yes. Now, again, I'm no expert either, despite having three kids, and I think there's no such thing as, a, as an expert parent, and uh, we do mistakes every single day uh, as parents, and uh, you just need to learn and uh, try to minimize the amount of mistakes that you make. In the eyes of your kids, uh, you'll always have made the wrong choice. Uh, but I like to think that uh, 15, 20 years from now, when they will turn back, right, uh, they will say, hey, you know what, Dad, Mom, you actually did something right. Uh, and uh, and uh, the proof will be in the way that will be uh, available to grow over the years mm-hmm. and overcome all these uh, difficulties that uh, an environment like the current one uh, offer them. But again, every, every age, uh, has its own uh, challenges and difficulties, right? I don't think that uh, for teenagers who grew up uh, in the Middle Ages, right, uh, life was any better. Yes, there was no social media, but you didn't know if you would have had some food uh, on your plate uh, when yeah. you got back home or if you got back home in the first place because if you got kidnapped or stuff, right, nobody would even know. Uh, our grandparents who went through the war wars, again, I don't think they had a better lifestyle. Uh, yeah. So in a way, this is an age of privilege in the sense that I think our kids uh, are probably the generation of kids who receive the most, uh, at least in terms of abundance and availability of things, inverted comma, right? But at times maybe this uh, comes at the expense of uh, scarcity, of feelings and emotions or care from some parents who now are more, uh, let's say, focused on the things rather than on the relationships. Uh, so as I said, I guess every age uh, brings its own complexities and challenges. And uh, social media, on one side, they're a great thing, as I said, because they give the ability to everyone to have a voice and be heard from the world. Uh, on the other side, uh, you need to be able to handle that uh, because otherwise, uh, instead of being... Uh, 
uh, on the positive side can turn out into into being uh, quite a negative uh, or uh, let's say difficult experience. I'm not a big social media guy, right? Uh, I don't post. Uh, uh, I have a LinkedIn profile which I've had for the past, I don't know, 25, 30 years. Uh, but that's more for me a way of being in contact with the network uh, so that I know that anywhere I go, uh, in absence of having something in my, uh, let's say, contact book, uh, I know how to reach out or how people can reach out to me, especially given how mobile we've been as a family. Uh, I have an Instagram account uh, with uh, my last post was probably four years ago or so, but you wouldn't see a picture of any member of my family. It's more a collection of nice places where I've been yeah. or images which I think capture an emotion or something that uh, I think uh, it's nice to share. I don't have a Facebook account. I don't have a Twitter account, which doesn't mean that that's the right way of doing it. It's just that in my, uh, let's say, priorities of uh, time allocation, Right, time for social media is not exactly being uh, a priority, so, and so uh, probably something to uh, focus on in in my later part of my life and career, yeah. because a clear gap uh, uh, to 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 be built upon. So you don't share short video on TikTok? No, no, no my my no little, my little no young yeah? my my little young has tried hard, right, to to loop me into those, uh, but she saw that uh, actually the outcome wasn't really accretive uh, to the to the video that she had to produce herself without my presence, so uh, she's better off without me. But it's funny because on TikTok you can also find videos from, uh, let's say, so-called financial advisors. Do you remember there was one, there was one guy who was super funny, he said, uh, uh, you know what, if you invest, um, I mean, if you go to a bank, and ask for, I don't know, uh, 100,000 euros, you know, it would take, or let's say you you want to loan for, for, for your house, you can get a million and you have to pay back in, I don't know, 30 years, right? If um, you go with a gun, they will give you no, directly. Else <laughs> 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 you can just steal the money, right? You go to the jail for five years and then you don't have to pay it back. And he's like, follow me for more financial advices. <laughs> that sounds very sound financial <laughs> advice. <in laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Don't do for Not sure about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, actually, something uh, a bit the boring one, but uh, no, actually, so you, want, you want to change topic. No, actually, the the closure on cyberbullying. I mean, cyberbullying might be harmful, but the slaps for my grandma were probably way more. <laughs> but <laughs> um, no, uh, jokes aside, um, one thing that I really want to ask, like um, for. People, uh, especially that maybe are starting their own career right now, um, that, that actually was also my case. I wanted to, you know, start a job in uh, in banking. Um, what, uh, from your point of view, what do you like and dislike about the CIB uh, compared to the private banking part? So. What I, do you I think I like different things in both, right? In mm -hmm. the sense that CAB uh, is a very high-pressure environment. Uh, it's very visible as a business, right? Because it goes on the front pages uh, of the uh, financial newspapers with uh, large transactions like M&As, IPOs, right? Yeah. So uh, it's a large transaction where you get in touch with uh, uh, senior management of companies, large deals, uh, uh, so, so it's uh, very team-oriented because there are large teams uh, of people who work around it. Uh, so, so 
uh, it pays well, uh, much better probably than uh, many other businesses uh, that we can think of. Uh, so, so it's a, it's a very nice business to be into. Uh, but uh, probably, right, uh, there's only a limited number, right, of people in the chain on of the team who actually have a client contact, right, and uh, therefore there's a lot of background work that needs to be done, which is not necessarily seen, appreciated, or rewarded, but there are actually a large number of people in the, in the back room, uh, right, sweating blood and tears <laughs> to make sure that uh, somebody on the front can actually uh, excel, uh, succeed, and, and deliver. Uh, it's also a job which has a high mortality rate in the sense that of the analysts who start as an investment banker, uh, probably a minute percentage will make it to the top because it's a pretty brutal life. And uh, again, the more you go up as well, uh, the more the number of slots uh, available shrinks because there are only so many uh, places which are available to give advice to the C-suite of the uh, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so I think it's a very good job, especially uh, at the beginning of your career, uh, even if you don't make it all the way through, because you develop uh, a good skill set, good experience, good working ethic, uh, and a set of knowledge, uh, which then you can redeploy in uh, many other, uh, let's say, professional activities. Uh, private banking, I like a lot because I think it's a very, uh, let's say, rich, fulfilling, and rewarding uh, job, both on the content side, uh, but as well, and more importantly, also on the relationship side. Because ultimately, you're dealing with uh, ultra high net worth individuals who, in their own rights, they're like potentially uh, small companies or even large ones, actually, uh, oftentimes, right? Uh, these are uh, complex cases who tend to have uh, needs on both sides of the balance sheet. So, in terms of financing, investment, they have an international profile because they happen to have businesses or real estate properties uh, scattered around the world. They have uh, succession plan needs because maybe they have uh, more than one kid, potentially from more than one wife. Uh, so uh, they tend to be pretty complex type of situations. Diver right? Diversification, you know. Diversification of risk, portfolio. right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, some of them view it that way. Uh, again, I'm not sure it diversifies the risk in that case uh, <laughs> rather than multiplying the risk, but <laughs> who am I to judge? I'm, I'm not one of my clients probably for a reason, uh, so they must you be You can better, also increase the pleasure, me. right? Yeah, again, uh, the, 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 uh, it depends on uh, what uh, what people gain pleasure from. But uh, yes, again, <laughs> I'm a convinced monogamist, uh, so I'm not best placed to, to uh, let's say, give advice on the front. And uh, therefore, I will just limit myself in the areas where I think I've had some, some, some value to add. But also private banking, going back to your point before, wealth management, depending how people call it, right? Uh, I think it's probably a career which is better suited at least uh, for front office type of job and relationship management type of job, or somebody who's a bit more senior, let's say, in, in their career. Mm -hmm. In a sense that uh, oftentimes we have uh, juniors joining from uh, universities, right, coming doing stages, graduation program, and rightly so, right, it's great. They want to grow and they want to develop a career in their particular space. But there's an element of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a reality checkpoint that they need to be aware of, right? It is not realistic that uh, they say, hey, I just got out of university. I want to be a relationship manager, right? So I would like to be the relationship manager of uh, high-profile clients. The reality is uh, wealth is still very much concentrated, right, uh, in uh, a population of single-digit uh, percent number uh, of uh, the whole population. 
uh, with an average which is more than 55, 60, 60 years, right? So how credible can a 20-something years old who's had few yeah. months of university as their background, right, to go in front of uh, uh, a client like that and be able to have a conversation, a knowledge and a relationship, right, in which the client can relate them uh, as a peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Uh, these people have been around for a while. They've gone through a million crises, right? Dot-com is, for them, is like yesterday, right? Before then, there was the oil crisis, uh, right? You go back to the early 70s or whatever. Argentinian bonds uh, blowing up, uh, right? Uh, so uh, it's difficult uh, for them to engage with somebody and give the credibility to somebody, right, who's not been around and seen uh, things for a while. You don't need to have been around for 40 years, but sure, uh, you must have been around for more than two or three uh, before you can develop uh, a certain type of relationship with credibility. Different story, of course, if you start talking next-gen, right? Yes, the more junior, uh, let's say, employees are probably better geared, right, to, to uh, start focusing on the next-gen, but that's still, uh, let's say, a thin layer uh, of the wealth which is available and uh, uh, something which will take more time uh, to, to, to develop further, right? Uh, so they need to be patient, they need to be realistic, understand how things work, and, and therefore grow through the ranks over time, uh, but not be too impatient uh, in terms of expectations. What is the, let's say, the toughest challenge that you faced with the client, if you can say it? I, I don't think uh, it's a matter of a challenge, right? I think the important thing is once, if you develop the trust relationship, right, with somebody. How can you gain the trust of a client? The trust of the client is uh, gained by uh, developing a dialogue uh, which is built on solid basis over time, right, which needs to start from, a, uh, let's say, understanding of your client. Uh, the, the worst mistake that I can think of is of somebody entering into a room in front of the client and saying, I think you should buy this fund. I think you should do this. I think you should do that. Right. So let's imagine that's, like uh, that, I'm that, a new client. What is the first thing you say when you enter in, in the room? The first thing is about learning about you. Because ultimately, right, it's like uh, people will hate to say it, right? But it's like going to the doctor or like going to your personal trainer, right? The client of a private bank is a very similar type of situation in my view. In the sense that if you don't know, okay, what is it that you are solving for in terms of what are your objectives, right? If you don't know, okay, what are your fears? Uh, what is your starting point? Uh, what are your issues? What are your problems? What keeps you up at night? So, so the very first step is a very thorough scanning, right, of the overall client situation, which allows you to really understand. So that's why, again, that's not something that you develop in a day because nobody will open up to you uh, first time you meet with somebody. But the important thing is to uh, make sure that these people understand that you're there for them this is not a transaction. This is a lifelong relationship that you want to build and develop with somebody with clear rules of engagement between the parts, right? I won't engage with you in a transactional relationship. I don't expect to be exploited by you as a client just to get the best pricing out of every single transaction. So the point is, let's understand what is it that keeps you up at night? What are the objectives that you want to achieve? What is the best way to achieve those objectives? Uh, based on a set of solutions that we share, we discuss, you're comfortable with, 
and then we go together hand in hand right uh, over the years and those objectives will change over time because it's different when you are in your early 30s with uh, a young family when you grow up into something bigger when you then uh, uh, you're pretty much done and you want to walk out of your business when then you need to go into a succession plan with your uh, let's say kids or grandkids or whatever right but but that's uh, really the essence uh, is uh, exactly having the kind of relationship being there for them knowing that they can trust you you're not supposed to know everything but you're supposed to be the guy who can put them in touch with a specialist in your bank who can give an answer to any question that they have. So you're in a way like, uh, exactly, they're trusted advisor. That's uh, what a private banker really is. But in your position that you have now, but also in the past, uh, you were responsible for the development of new business. So with the like, I don't know, maybe cold callings, new clients, or you already had the portfolio? Uh, no, in my role, uh, I'm responsible for the business. I have teams uh, in my location who are responsible to manage the relationship with the client. So ultimately, they are responsible to build and develop that portfolio. I play a role in the way of, again, as part of my role, I will come across people. I will strike relationship. And therefore, I will introduce some of the relationship managers who are best placed to, let's say, manage on a day-to-day basis uh, that relationship to the relevant relationship manager for that particular market uh, and with the required kind of uh, expertise, profile, skill set, and so on and so forth. And similarly, the relationship manager will invite me and ask me to tag along with them to go and meet clients, right? Uh, because they see the benefit of having my presence as part of the conversation and giving the client the comfort about the commitment that we have uh, to a particular market, to a particular uh, family, to a particular group, mm-hmm. right? And help them out to uh, get the best out of the relationship that they have with Deutsche Bank. That's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, actually, um, do, do you want to ask something more about that? No, I, I want to change a little bit. Um, so we said to, to, to depressure, you said, you know, traveling is a, plays a, a big part and, uh, sports, uh, what do you like to do? What, uh, Luca, when it's clocking out from, uh, Look at when it's clocking out. Well, it's more than clocking in uh, because I found out over the years that clocking out uh, generally was not a good uh, strategy uh, to do sport uh, because, unfortunately, it's very easy to get caught into your, uh, let's say, uh, long list of to-dos, emergencies, calls, uh, uh, clients, meetings, or whatever. So trying to go to the gym, say, I don't know, 8 p.m. at night uh, didn't really work. And uh, uh, plus, uh, I found out that... uh, that's the only time that I actually managed to spend some time with my family during the week, which is dinner time. Uh, so so uh, sport is uh, kind of the start of the day type of thing. Uh, so hey, you wake up at 6 in the morning, out of the house by 6.20, in the gym by 6.45. Uh, so I have my daily, uh, let's say, routine uh, going to the gym. Uh, but even there, I try to keep it as varied as possible mm-hmm. as it can possibly be uh, because again, I get bored pretty easily as a personality. Uh, so I like to do a mix between uh, uh, weightlifting, uh, intensity training, uh, yoga, cardio, you name it, right? And then uh, this is the, let's say, the weekly routine before going into the office. Mm-hmm. We can uh, generally a mix of two things, right? At times I try and go and play squash because I have more degrees of freedom uh, in terms of uh, uh, timing when I can do things. 
so I recently uh, found a center here in Luxembourg, which is uh, actually pretty good. So I started again playing squash after a, a window of uh, 16 months uh, during which I, I couldn't practice. And or, uh, let's say, new things, for example. This weekend, my wife, I said, uh, wasn't around because she was in the UK. My 16 years old, I enrolled him just before uh, in Q4 last year. Uh, to a gym where he started doing uh, kickboxing. So we did the run from home to the gym. Uh, we went into the ring together. Uh, we did a bit of sparring, uh, kickboxing together. So it was it was uh, a fun thing to do. So that's, uh, let's say, the, the ordinary, uh, let's say, type of sports that we generally do. And uh, my big love in terms of sport, but that's unfortunately once a year, maybe twice if you're lucky, is king. Uh, so, so that's what happens generally during the Christmas season uh, when with the family we go and we ski. Nice. I, I was worried. I was worried you, you would say paddle, but uh, luckily. No, I never played it. I know it's very popular <laughs> and uh, seems to be coming up uh, uh, in terms of uh, yeah. uh, exactly popularity in general. Uh, I yet haven't uh, had the opportunity to to test it, but hey, I'm open to it. Why not? <laughs> I should try. Yeah. So if any of you plays Padel and uh, wants to have a go and uh, I never try. played, I, I just think That's that you should. That's a good start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I never play. I prefer tennis. Yeah. Okay. Padel, I don't know. I'm not gonna say anything about Padel because everyone is playing. So all people that are so it must be watch. good, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> or easy. I don't know. But and uh, actually, okay, skiing. I agree. I like it. Uh, gym you know how to as ski? Well. Yeah, when when I can, I mean, when my foot is not hurt. But yeah, um, but uh, squash. Actually, what is uh, what do you like about it? Because um, what I like about squash, I think you're the first person you, uh, I met. That, uh, is 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 a very intense sport. Is a very very intense sport. Okay. You have no time to think about anything else. Uh, it's it's. Uh, probably one of the sports which demands the highest level of endurance and, uh, and stamina uh, that you can think mm-hmm. of. Uh, so I started very late in uh, my life to play squash because I actually started in uh, uh, during my MBA in 2001. Uh, then uh, there was much of an opportunity to play for quite a few years because in Milan, yes, there was uh, one center uh, where there was a squash, but in Italy it's not a really popular sport. In uh, London, uh, it is, but uh, there's not so much in the way of uh, uh, facilities as you would like. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong was really the turning point because we were lucky enough to have the squash court in our building. Inside the building. And, and uh, I was lucky enough to have a good friend, uh, well, actually two or three friends, who were all, and plus two or three colleagues who were all into squash. So back then I was probably playing three times a week. Uh, but it's one against one? Yeah. Okay, Not, you cannot play in couple. Uh, no, there are some variations which uh, at times people try to play, but the court is small and it gets yeah, messy. So, so <laughs> one, one against one, I think it's uh, probably the, the, the safest option, uh, even yeah. because uh, if you play with people who swing tennis-like, uh, it can be dangerous in a, in a, in a squash court. Uh, and I was myself uh, a culprit uh, back in the days uh, with uh, my batsman. We played the squash game and unfortunately it came a bit too close to me uh, during a game and I happened to hit him with the racket on his uh, eyebrow. Uh, so yes, next phase we were at the hospital in Milan giving him uh, two or three stitches. Uh, so nice. yes, it can be a pretty uh, brutal sport. Yeah, for me it was, maybe not for him. <laughs> <but yeah. laughs> you laughed. We both laughed, I no. guess. Uh, <laughs> right.
<laughs> we we took it with good spirit. Uh, these are things that can happen. Uh, there was yeah. no uh, any sort of uh, animosity uh, around it. Where do you play squash here in Cock? Uh, there is a, a top squash center, uh, which is just a 10 minutes drive from my office. Uh, I couldn't point it on a map because I've only been uh, twice uh, just okay. before mm. the year. Uh, but yes, it's uh, close to where Cargolux is. Ah, okay. And I didn't mean to make any any adver- uh, even advertisement here. Mm. Cargolux is in Kinder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a nice center. They have uh, many courts, and uh, I was uh, put in touch uh, uh, with somebody at the center uh, through uh, an, an acquaintance of mine. Uh, so now I need to get into the flow because, again, it's a sport that if you don't play regularly, uh, you can be pretty miserable. Uh, it's also a pretty brutal sport because even a tiny difference in terms of a level uh, between one player and another uh, will lead to a 11-0 outcome. Uh, which is uh, which is not great. So uh, it's also a quite delicate sport in terms of finding somebody uh, which you are at a comparable level, uh, which is enjoyable for both sides. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as I said, great sport. Okay. How many minutes last usually? The well, generally the you book the, the court for an hour. Okay. And, uh, and how long a match lasts is a function of uh, uh, how many rallies uh, you do before uh, the game is over which if you're both at the same level uh, can last, can, can last a quite bit, a bit, yeah. uh, but generally not because, uh, again, uh, it's a sport in which closing the point is, uh, is uh, the nature of the game. Uh, it's a, you wouldn't have, like, in a tennis game, some of those. There is one point which no. will never stop, right? And you, yeah. The ball going from side to side with nobody really taking the initiative to try to close the point. It's a much more aggressive uh, let's say sport in that respect. I was always curious about squash. I never played it, but uh, I think it's funny. You want to play? If I can smash your head, yeah. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. He's the funny guy. We need one, huh? There's always one in the team. Come on, <laughs> let's play. Couple. Okay, you want to bet? You want to bet? We're in a couple, right? want to bet? Something that... Um, a more down to earth um question um th- this one we ask also to the other guests from genova if you had to rate from 1 to 10 the let's call it pre-made pesto right Jeez. how uh, how much well what would you rate it do i need to give a rating really <laughs> yeah uh, uh, i i think 1 is uh, okay. as high as i could yeah. push you, you're a real gentleman, because Marco, I think he said minus fifteen. Minus fifteen. <laughs> yes. You know, I can give one for the effort, uh, but yes, uh, I guess that unfortunately uh, cannot be called as such, right? And what's your um, favorite food from, let's say, Genova and all over the world? Well, favorite food from Genoa, uh, I think. Uh, Pansotti al sugo di noci. So mm. it's a type of pasta which is like a big tortello. Okay. Uh, very thick uh, and uh, very filled. Uh, and the fill, uh, filling meat? is made, uh, now it's uh, with uh, spinach and ricotta. Ah, okay. And then it's cooked with uh, um, uh, nut sauce, which is a mm-hmm. very creamy uh, type of sauce, uh, very tasty. Uh, but Unfortunately, that's a memory of the past because uh, uh, I've been uh, discovered to be uh, celiac uh, oh. five years ago. And so uh, I had to move to a gluten-free diet since 
so uh, unfortunately, uh, those delicacies that no longer belong to my uh, dietary uh, schedule. But hey, again, we need to find alternatives. Yes. So wait, so you cannot even eat pizza, right? Or pizza, only pasta. For Listen, uh, there are uh, more and more gluten-free version of uh, pretty much every food uh, with time going by. Uh, I think also with mixed success. Also in Luxembourg, yes, if you go to, to any uh, supermarket, uh, there will always be a gluten-free. Um, but I mean uh, for like department. the pizza, if you want to order at the restaurant. Uh, no, restaurant, unfortunately, uh, I can't remember the last time I had a pizza, but probably it wasn't uh, in a restaurant, uh, at least uh, because nobody would have, or very few, an oven which is solely dedicated to uh, yeah. gluten-free pizza. So the contamination risk is such that uh, if you cook the pizza in the same oven yes. as uh, mm. where you cook the normal pizza, there will be flour, uh, let's say, uh, floating around. And so uh, it kind of defeats, uh, it defeats the purpose. But uh, a decent alternative, uh, not great, uh, but still you have those uh, gluten-free frozen pizza that you can uh, cook at your own place, which is, for example, what I did last Saturday because I was along with the kids, so I said, okay, let's go pizza. And uh, they have the normal one, of course. Uh, I would not uh, force on them the, uh, the pain of going for a gluten-free <laughs> one. Uh, but I have the gluten-free, but benefit of doing it at home is that you just uh, enrich it as you like it. So, so uh, the pizza is more like a, uh, an excuse to have a base on which you <laughs> overlay then all sorts of uh, toppings uh, that you like. So in a way, the pizza becomes a non-relevant uh, in the scheme of the dish that you're cooking, uh, what it matters is all the richness of the. Uh, so, which is your favorite? How do you top your pizza? Uh, I top it in a way that probably is uh, too much for too many, uh, because uh, uh, this time around, uh, again, on top of the base that. Be careful! You have on a, a guy from Napoli next to you. So yeah, you know. no, probably, probably you will just uh, scream and shout. <laughs> but of course, there's never enough sauce nor mozzarella in the one that you buy. So okay. I like, I like it rich. Uh, okay. So, so there's good a good start. Good start. Okay. Good start. Uh, secondly, I did uh, a part with uh, pesto. Because being from Genoa, we came back from Christmas, uh, our trip to Italy. So you put We've the paste on the pizza? Yes. Oh. Yes. There is more, right? <laughs> Which is phenomenal. Uh, and uh, I divide it in quarters. So that at least it's oh, like okay. having four different pizzas, right? Uh, then then uh, I did one part with gorgonzola. Okay. Because I love it. Uh, I did one part with uh, caramelized onions. Okay. Uh, so yes, actually yes, it was in three thirds uh, rather than in in quarters this time around. So so the pizza was organized pretty much in this way. Okay, I can forgive you the pesto because it's just one quarter. So <laughs> not all the pizza. But you died. should try. You should try. You probably uh, haven't tried the real pesto ever. Uh, so so. So you ask me to try. You can bring, you can bring the you pizza. You can bring the proper uh, pizza from Napoli. You can bring the proper pesto from uh, Genoa, and, uh, okay. and then we can mix it up. Imagine what we can do. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and um do you have anything that um other than sports that help you to depression? Do you like reading books or watching TV shows? For you it's um, so no go or Yeah, no, I like I like TV, I like uh, theaters, I like uh, oh. music, I like events. Uh, I have to say, we were reasonably active uh, when we used to live in London uh, because uh, again, the city had to offer a lot in that respect. Yeah. First few months here, I said uh, there wasn't really much on the social scene and or on the ability of going out. So uh, we tend to take, uh, let's say, a reasonably uh, utilitaristic approach. There is a 
dinner when we come back home, uh, say, you know, we, we're done with dinner probably around 9.45, 10 ish. Uh, so you don't want to uh, go too long in the evening. So generally, it's uh, one episode on uh, Netflix mm -hmm. uh, that we watch uh, with my wife or as a family if the kids are interested. So that's, I would say, uh, let's say the, the, the weekly routine. Okay. Uh, in the respect and then after that uh, religiously reading before uh, going to sleep oh, every time uh, every night sorry uh, so so no definitely uh, I'm a big uh, reader uh, and so yeah I read every night before going to sleep what's your favorite book difficult to pick one uh, honestly uh, at the moment I'm much more into let's say what I call light reading uh, which is uh, mostly uh noir crime uh, type of novels okay. uh, which do not demand too much uh, mental energy and they're just like uh, uh, a good uh, relaxing segue you know hopefully uh, moving into uh, into into good sleep okay and after sleeping once you wake up what's the first app you open in the morning i don't know i don't open any app in the morning no no so you don't check I your phone when you wake up no, actually, there, there's the sleeping app. That's the one that I need to to stop in order to check how my sleeping pattern was. That's actually the answer. Snooze the alarm. <laughs> that, that, that's actually the answer. Uh, bedtime, I think it's called, uh, which uh, analyzes your uh, sleeping cycle in oh, terms of yes. number of hours, okay. uh, which REM, REM phase you were into, at what time, uh, quality of the sleep, uh, and and all of those kind of things. So yes, that's that's the first app that I have to check just because you need to, uh, let's say, stop it and check how it went by. Otherwise, no, it's emails from work. Uh, but I try to be disciplined and uh, read those uh, only after uh, I'm done with the gym because the risk is if I read them before and something really catches my eye and mm. I feel it's urgent, I end up skipping the gym and going straight into the office. Uh. Uh, but given that nobody expects an answer from me at 6.30 in the morning, I can, uh, I think that I can afford the luxury of, uh, let's say, delaying that uh, by an hour and a half or so and checking that email uh, at 8.30 in the morning should be good enough to uh, deal with any emergency crisis which may have popped up overnight. And uh, while at the gym, what are you blasting on your uh, earphones, earbuds, whatever you have? No, I just uh, use the the music from the from the gym. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, uh, I'm okay. not a big fan of. Uh, I generally use uh, um, uh, beats, right? Uh, when I go running, just because yes, the, the the sound of the car passing by is not exactly uh, conducive. But uh, when I'm in the gym, uh, I will just uh, I will just uh, go with the flow. Otherwise, uh, yes, when I run, uh, I will say a couple of options: uh, Linkin Park. Uh, so that's a band which uh, I think is really supportive, uh, supportive yeah. of uh, of uh, high energy, uh, or uh, if you want to go more uh, light DJ style, David Guetta, uh, mm -hmm. right? So so different styles, but I want the music which will pump the system and which will uh, support me in my in my effort in that respect. And what's your favorite Linkin Park song? If you have to pick one. Uh, well, in the end, is the obvious one, uh, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, but again, they made so many pieces, which are uh, which are great. M mine is uh, from the inside. Okay, I love it. it. If I really have to get pumped up, uh, it's mine to go. <laughs> Yours? Uh, one step closer. Okay. I went to the concert of Linkin Park in Hong Kong, uh, which was 
great. Really? Yeah. And uh, it was, well, again, the lead singer was still around uh, yeah. Yeah. back then. And uh, yes, it was a memorable evening because uh, my daughter, the eldest one, uh, was there probably like 12 or so. Uh, so so in a way, I guess uh, we shocked a bit. No, not even. Uh, yeah, probably more like 10-ish. Uh, but she <laughs> was into Linkin Park because uh, I was blasting Linkin Park every time we were driving, uh, right? Uh, because I had all the CDs and all of that. So when they came to Hong Kong, she was like, oh, Dad, I want to come with you. And my wife, she's not really a hard rock uh, fan, but nevertheless, uh, she <laughs> tagged along and joined, I guess, more for lack of confidence in my ability of uh, controlling my daughter <laughs> <laughs> exactly, uh, during the concert rather than, uh, than anything else. But I have to say, uh, the... <laughs> concert scene in Hong Kong is the most surreal one that I've ever been at in the mm -hmm. sense that people are so well behaved uh, that you could not expect anything like that. Even in a concert like Linkin Park where in any other place you may expect uh, a bit of wilderness going on, uh, I have to say uh, they were so well behaved which uh, there was nothing to, to, to worry about for the kids. Pre-assigned seats, uh, people hardly moving, a few, few people just standing up and doing things. Uh, Imagine the right. mosh pit. Please, gentlemen, go no. first. <laughs> oh, no, my pleasure. Go first. <laughs> um, uh, another question that I really like to do. Uh, picture this. You're going to a restaurant for dinner. Uh, you'll see at a table of four, of course, uh, with yourself. Uh, who would you pick? And you can choose anyone from any time, so past or present, and from anywhere. Ooh. You have to bring... Three people with you. Three people with me. Who would they be? Wow, that's uh, that's a big one that requires quite uh, uh, quite a lot of thinking. Give me thirty seconds. No pressure. No pressure. No. Let's put some. Twenty-five, twenty-four. Yeah, we should put the music on. Yeah. The background. But actually, I, I think I've never seen Linkin Park. I'm Jealous. Sorry. Okay, no, no. I, th I think it will be a mix from uh, different areas, right? Because ultimately the purpose will be uh, to learn how they got there, right? Uh, what brought them uh, to get there, right? So probably staying closer to, to our times, right? Uh, I guess somebody like Jeff Bezos, right? Uh, I think would be an interesting choice in the sense of this guy pretty much built an empire uh, by himself in a matter of... Uh, just over 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so uh, somebody coming up with that idea out of nowhere, right? And uh, being able to deliver and execute uh, and become at the level where uh, he reached is uh, uh, quite astonishing in, uh, in that respect. Uh, probably uh, being a sport fanatic, right? Uh, somebody from the sport arena, right? Uh, so somebody like, again, Ronaldo, right? Mm. Somebody who not only is super talented, right, but he also achieved great results uh, thanks to his, uh, let's say, discipline, his dedication, his commitment, right? Somebody coming from a very poor, uh, let's say, background mm. and again, having built his own, uh, let's say, uh, career and success yeah. and not only be successful on the field, but also being successful as an entrepreneur, as a uh, social media, uh, let's say, uh, uh, icon. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, somebody who clearly uh, has been able to, to, to do a lot. 
Well, Cristiano right. Ronaldo makes more money from the social media than from and football. From sports, right? yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, exactly in that respect, it's uh, definitely somebody to to, uh, to learn something from. And uh, third one, so we need to move away from sport. We need to move away from uh, let's say entrepreneurship. So probably somebody uh, who's been successful at achieving something, uh, Gandhi, okay, right? Somebody who again uh, against all adversities uh, challenged and defeated, uh, let's say, uh, an established power, right? Uh, with the power of word, with the power of persuasion, with the power of uh, uh, conviction. Right, uh, so uh, I think probably this will give me a good mix, uh, let's say, uh, in terms of personalities who shaped the world and uh, achieved great results, and uh, uh, clearly aspirational and uh, and uh, and uh, fulfilling in terms of uh, uh, what they've done. I like that. Do you want to ask anything? Uh, I feel the more I ask, the more I want to ask. But uh, at some point, we have to. Thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> huh? yeah, I wonder how Ronaldo would cope with pesto, though. You, well, think, you think Ronaldo put the pesto on the pizza? Probably not, because he doesn't even he know doesn't what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, they just mean pizza. But yeah, if but probably he would him, probably so. put it on on uh, on uh, a grilled chicken. Because you know, uh, <laughs> with the pesto, pesto. and pesto is good because actually is you know what it's uh, all fat and veggies. Uh, so because you have uh, pine nuts, uh, you have olive oil, oh, yeah. uh, you have parmesan cheese, you have basil, and you have a bit of salt and a bit of garlic. So it's actually very healthy, super calorific, very tasty. Uh, but for somebody like him, uh, who probably needs uh, I don't know five thousand calories per day, uh, right? Given the type of sport oh, yeah. and uh, activity that he does, why not? Uh, you want to ask some because you're, I, you already asked the questions from uh, the list. Yeah. Do you but have anything? Um, well, I don't remember actually the questions, but uh, for me it's good. Just like it, you talk a lot, so. No, actually, uh, very last one. What's your next uh, achievement? Something that um, someone like you that changed jobs so many times and. Business-wise and geographically-wise, let's say, yeah. what's your um, this is your final final location, Luxembourg? Who knows? <laughs> right? It depends how many more years they need to keep working. Uh, uh, <laughs> because again, we three kids, uh, most of which still at school, yeah, and they will and, go to and, university and, and, and abroad. They will go to university. They will get married. Let's see, right? <laughs> Uh, and and uh, with few more mortgages to clear, uh, I guess probably need another uh, good 15 years of work before I can uh, close shop. <laughs> uh, so so happy here in Luxembourg, uh, right? I'm here to stay. I have a long-term horizon type of uh, commitment. Uh, so so uh, happy to be here and happy to to grow here. Uh, then if uh, five, 10, 15 years from now, uh, there will be another opportunity somewhere else. So my boss calls me and say, hey, Luca, I need you here or I need you there. And uh, that will be the right and interesting opportunity for me, right? Uh, we'll uh, we'll consider that. Maybe Napoli. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Deutsche Bank oh. wants 